Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 228, Mistress Anne Boleyn, Scandal of Christendom. So for me this is a significant episode and hopefully for all of you because this is the start of four weeks of fun all about Anne Boleyn, a character who has and still does fascinate and divide. We're going to have a hoolie, a little like the Richard III hoolie we had pretty much a year ago now. This is what we're going to do. Over the next month, there will be six episodes on the history of England, four from me and two from guests. Ooh, I hear you say, how exciting, of which more in a minute. The last of these will be one episode from me laying out some of the pros and cons of a particular debating question on which you will then vote. The debating question in question, as it were, is this. The history of England agrees with Professor Eric Ives that Anne Boleyn was a maker of history and rejects Catherine of Aragon's insult that she was nothing more than the scandal of Christendom. This, of course, is why I have called our Hooli the scandal of Christendom, not because I consider Anne to be necessarily scandalous, but because we will decide between us whether Catherine was correct in what she said. So, that question again. The history of England agrees with Professor Eric Ives that Anne Boleyn was a maker of history and rejects Catherine of Aragon's insult that she was nothing more than the scandal of Christendom. You will be able to vote yes, no, or indeed, like Henry and Anne, you can abstain. Everyone who votes on the Facebook page, which is where the voting will be done, will be entered into a prize draw, and there shall be four prizes. Four shall be the number of prizes that we have, three we will not have, excepteth that we proceedeth to four, and five shall be right out. Here they are, in no particular order we have a reproduction of the medallion prepared on the occasion 
of Anne Boleyn's pregnancy in 1536 by the stone carver Lucy Churchill. Lucy's work has been commented on by Eric Ives, David Starkey, Susan Bordeaux, Alison Weir as the best representation of Anne that we have. It is also a work of beauty. Secondly, we have a silver Henry VIII half-groat, generously donated by Simon Hall of Hall's Hammered Coins. Simon's link is on the website. He has a fabulous range of coins, from the Saxons to the Stuarts. Just as an aside, I got in touch with Simon about buying something, and he said, and I quote, Bloody heck, I've been listening to you. And then take me a little bag of coins and cut coins. They sit in front of me, and I look at them, and I finger them as I write stuff. Love it. Thank you so much, Simon. Then there are two books from our two guest podcast contributors. I'm really pleased to introduce two people who've forgotten more about Anne Boleyn and the Tudors than I've ever known. The first is Claire Ridgway, the creator of the quite amazing Anne Boleyn Files website. It's an incredible resource. I've used it extensively and so much more than a website with comments and tours and original sources. So Claire's going to be doing a podcast on who was responsible for Anne's death. She'll also be offering a prize, as I say, one of either her book, The Fall of Anne Boleyn, A Countdown, or her online course from medievalcourses.com, which is called The Life of Anne Boleyn. You can choose. I have incidentally referred frequently to that magnificent resource, that is the Anne Boleyn Files, over the next month. So to help, I've created a sort of little mini-index of a few references on the historyofengland.co.uk, so that you can go there and jump easily onwards if you want more detail. And then, amazingly enough, we have Natalie Groninger, a researcher, writer and educator from Australia. She's the creator of On the Tudor Trail, another fantastic website dedicated to documenting historic sites and buildings associated with Anne Boleyn, which I have used freely in the making of this programme, along with a number of small animals, none of whom were hurt. She's also a multiple author, and one of these books, including her latest book, Discovering Tudor London, is kindly being offered as a prize by Natalie, for which I am very grateful. Possibly even better, Natalie is going to be speaking on that critical part of Henry's life and court, the summer progress. I weep with gratitude for all these kind folks, and you can find more information on the website so that I do not warble on too much. But I can heartily recommend both the Anne Boleyn Files and onthetudortrail.com. Also on the website and Facebook are the rules of the competition, because you must have rules to have fun, as I'm sure you all know. And also, I've put the schedule of everything that's going to be going on. But what of members, I hear you say? What of the members whose contributions keep these podcasts going, that keep me off the street and put food in the mouth of, well, the dog mainly, but the family as well when we can fight our way past the hound? We will, of course, have special things for them. Special episodes, Steve Cloutier on Thomas Wyatt, the poet, and possible Anne Boleyn lover, which we had last week. How cool was that? This week, we've got the historiography of Anne, how history has treated her and her reputation over the centuries. And finally, we've got an extra competition just for members. The competition is going to be on who killed Anne Boleyn. There's going to be a vote and a special prize, which will be an Elizabeth I silver half groat, once again donated by Simon Hall of Hall's Hammered Coins. I love you, members. I love the rest of you too, but would love you just a little bit more if you joined up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. This week, then, is a bit of an odd week. If you are a regular listener to the History of England, you might decide to just turn off at this point, treat this effectively as a holiday week. 
because I'm going to begin the begin. No, I'm not. I'm going to go back to the beginning and do an episode on Anne's life up to the point we ended last week, the end of 1532, Anne's life as a single woman, as it were. Why, I hear you ask, why would you do such a thing going over old ground? Well, it's so we all start from the same place, so that anybody joining the podcast just now for the scandal of Christendom Hooley does not have to trawl back through time, back through episodes through which Anne's story has been woven. So, without more ado then, gentle listeners, here we go. Anne Boleyn was born at Blickling Hall, one of the most beautiful secular buildings in the country. Can't say I've seen all of the secular buildings in England, of course, so, you know, I have to qualify the statement, but I can also tell you the buns in the tea shop are delicious. And apparently, Anne still turns up there from time to time, so, you know, woo. Anne was born at the age of seven. Well, no, she wasn't, in fact, though some of her biographers have dated her birth as late as 1507, is my rather lumbering point whereas generally most agree now that she was probably born in 1500 or 1501. She was the second child of Elizabeth Howard, a.k.a. Elizabeth Boleyn, wife of Thomas Boleyn. Anne's father has not come out of history that well, looking like a rather scheming, self-serving courtier who chucked his daughters at the king in the search of wealth and power. But he's no cipher. Thomas Boleyn was also a talented diplomat with great culture and erudition. Thomas came from a family which had traded its way to the top, from a yeoman farmer called Geoffrey Boleyn in the 1420s. History books these days seem to rather superciliously poo-poo the idea that the Boleyns came from less than noble stock. Well, actually, they did work their way up. It's just a couple of generations before Thomas is all. Thomas's life has a rags-to-rags feel to it. Or, well, fine linen cloth to fine linen cloth, maybe. Life would see him return to pretty much where he'd started, minus a child and plus a title, the Earl of Wiltshire. Through her mother, Anne was also connected to the super-powerful Howard family, Earls of Commuterbelt, otherwise known as Surrey, and Dukes of Norfolk. So the Duke of Norfolk was her uncle. Anne had an elder sister, Mary Boleyn, and a younger brother, George. Incredibly, Mary was Henry's mistress before Anne in the 1520s. You may have read The Other Boleyn Girl, for example, in which Anne does not emerge with any great credit. But then, it's a novel. So, only a passing resemblance to history in that particular case. Mary was married at the time with William Carey and appears to have been something of a wild child. She'd returned from the French court and known as the English mare since she'd been ridden so many times. In Mary's defence, this tradition rests on just one letter, as I understand it. There are a bunch of articles on the Anne Boleyn files you might like to read about it, in fact. But if it was true, then maybe this experience coloured Anne's view of life. Famously, of course, she was to refuse to be discarded, like her sister Mary. Anne's younger brother George would become a close associate of the king, rising on Anne's coattails. George Cavendish, Woolsey's gentleman usher, gave him a rather dusty reputation as a womaniser. Retha Warnicker alternatively more recently suggested that he might be homosexual, but he was certainly close to the king by the later 1520s and was to be an early supporter of evangelical ideas and religious reform. The Berlin girls both had their opportunities for education in the ways of the world and the acquisition of culture. Famously, the English nobility liked to get rid of their children as early as they could, as remarked on by a shocked Venetian visitor. Obviously, this is an admirable ambition I entirely support, 
although parents at the time, covered their base motives by claiming that by sending children to the households of the rich, famous and cultured, they were giving their children the best possible education and start in life and a social network which, as we all know, sadly remains important to this day. Anyway, before I get onto a soapbox about social mobility, Mary Boleyn seems to have gone over to France with the ill-fated marriage of Mary Tudor to Dribbly Louis, King of France, and may not have come back when Mary fled back home after Dribbly Louis's death with her new husband, Charles Brandon. At which point, Mary may or may not have acquired said English mayor reputation. But Anne, Anne was sent to a court every bit the equal of the French court. With Anne just a tender 13 years old, probably, she was sent to the court of Margaret of Austria, one of the most cultured and powerful people in Europe, at Mechelen in Netherlands. Margaret was immediately impressed, and she wrote Thomas, I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. Though it has to be said, Margaret would have to have been pretty mean to write to the worried mum and dad and say, mm, your daughter's a fat loser with body odour, but let us take her at her word. Anne was put under one of Margaret's tutors, and Margaret was a tireless mentor and chaperone. At some point, we're not quite sure when, Anne then wound up at the French court in the household of Queen Claude, a pious and serious person, unlike her husband Francis I, who was on a continual party and trailed behind him discarded mistresses like I don't know what, suitable metaphors gratefully received. For her part, Anne was quite clear what was expected of her, and there is a letter from her which seems to contribute to a reputation of Anne the serious politician, that is, as someone who took herself seriously. Sir, I understand that you desire me to be a woman of good reputation when I come to court, and you tell me the Queen will take the trouble to converse with me. Anne returned to England in 1522. At 21 years old, it was time for her to be introduced to court and start finding her a husband before she was too long in the tooth. We see her first at a pageant, playing the part of perseverance, which is horribly appropriate, of course. The pageant appears to have involved a certain amount of castles, symbolism, dancing and soft fruit. There is always, of course, room for soft fruit at any and all occasions. At this early stage, Anne would be crossing the paths of people who would later be supporters or opponents. Jane Parker, who would become her brother's wife. And, of course, Henry's sister, Princess Mary, who would be implacably opposed to Anne in the future and infect her husband, Suffolk, with the same attitudes. Anne quickly acquired for herself a reputation for fashionable French ways, or at least in fashion. Now, anyone who has ever seen me will know that fashion and I are on barely nodding acquaintances, but I just happened to watch Anne of a Thousand Days the other day, which I thought was terribly good, despite having to watch it through a series of grumbles from my other half about Richard Burton. And I think I may have spotted a French fashion thing. I figure a lot of the English ladies were sported with rather frumpy gable hoods, while Anne and others had a sort of round hood. Now, I may be wrong, of course. Answers on a postcard, the history of England, and so on. I'm here to be educated in the ways of fashion. Anne was essentially very well prepared for courtly life. Even her enemies would admit to her, in the words of Thomas Cromwell, intelligence, spirit and courage. Anne was quick-witted. She spoke French beautifully, and she'd been taught in the manners of courtly games. Now, 
by courtly games. I'm not talking of things like Tiggy Off Ground or whatever, though I have no doubt Anne would have excelled at that too. Henry's court, and most courts of Europe, were stuffed full of young, rich, bored nobility. It was a hormonal soup. This was a dangerous combination, or possibly a fun combination, depending on your outlook at life. Anyway, for women, it was something of a snake pit. You were required to sparkle, entertain, even excite. But you must never break the rules of acceptable behaviour and indeed gender politics. You will no doubt be surprised and saddened to learn that double standards were in operation even back then. Baldassare Castiglione would not publish his book The Courtier until 1528, but nonetheless his book summed up the prevailing rules. That as far as men were concerned, you could play pretty much any trick to have your wicked way with any of the women of the court. Lie, cheat, for sure, no problem. Obviously, it wasn't courtly to walk up to somebody at the dance and say, hey, up, you don't sweat much for a fat lass. How's about it? This isn't Loughborough. All had to be done elegantly, and in Kenny's words, all in the best possible taste with wit and word games. But it was totally usual for men to be sexual predators. The job of the woman was to sparkle, entertain, and spar wittily. And at the same time, deflect these advances, stay within the bounds of propriety, and never take the initiative. Sounds like a nightmare, I have to say, and maybe Loughborough ain't so bad. But the best indications we have are that Anne understood these rules, probably enjoyed them and was good at it. She had that quick wit, ability with words, love of fashion and display that made the good courtier. And I think it's beyond doubt that she had a point of view, whether politics, religion or whatever. No commentator has ever said, nah, she was all right, I guess a bit dull. As it happens, we will learn over the next few episodes, even Anne could fall off the tightrope into the swamp. And for Anne, her momentary lapses would have tragic consequences. It occurs to me that could be a plot spoiler, but just to check, I am assuming that you all know that this isn't a happily ever after story. If you don't, turn away now. During the early 1520s, the marriage of their children was the main thing occupying the minds of Elizabeth and Thomas Boleyn. So Mary was more kind of sorted. She had married one William Carey in 1520, which hadn't stopped King Henry's eye wandering. And she and Henry duly had an affair, with William Carey, no doubt, waving the king through and holding the door. He was, however, richly rewarded with land and wealth, but it's an odd situation, the oddness of which people don't really seem to comment on very much. Mary's life demonstrates just how rotten historical film and fiction can be as a way of learning history, since in Anne of a Thousand Days... It absolutely mangles Mary's story. He's got her sitting at Hever Castle, all deserted and pregnant with Henry's child. Everything in that subclause is in all probability tripe. She'd have been in Hertfordshire, not Kent, probably with her husband Carey, and her baby's father would in all probability have been William Carey, not Henry. Apart from that, it's fine. Little brother George Berlin reached court as a gentleman of the Privy Chamber in 1525, and was quickly married to Jane Parker. He was proving himself as every bit as intelligent as his sister Anne. He was an able courtier, popular with the king, and was duly well rewarded. Like Anne, he also showed an interest in evangelical ideas, as Luther did his thing over in Germany. Anne's marriage plans, of course, were to prove just a little bit more complicated, as you may be aware. But it could have all been so different. It just so happens that Thomas Boleyn had a claim to the earldom of Ormond in Ireland. But as you know, possession is nine parts of the law, a phrase incidentally first written down in 1616, should he be interested. 
and Thomas was not in Ireland. He was variously at the French court and in London, and so another claimant, one James Butler, he was in possession. So, they came up with a wizard wheeze that Anne and James should get hitched. The plan didn't happen. No one is quite sure why. It could be that Wolsey nixed it with other plans for Butler, or indeed it could have been Thomas Blynn holding out for a complete win of the Ormond Estates. The next marriage event is of very great significance. Somewhere between 1523 and 1526, Anne became enamoured of a young man called Henry Percy, heir to the Dukedom of Northumberland, and so, financially at least, a good catch, though reputedly something of a dipstick. I summarise for want of time, of course. Anyway, we have the story from a man called George Cavendish. Cavendish was Wolsey's gentleman usher, and 30 years later he'd write a jolly good life of Wolsey. Cavendish's literary offering had a theme, as most history did in fact back then, when accuracy and establishing the objective truth, if there is such a thing, was not the point of history. The point of history was to tell the bigger story, the bigger truth. Cavendish's history and bigger truth was the fickleness of fate. A common enough trope, it has to be said, and Wolsey was a very suitable subject for such a story, the wealthiest and most powerful man in the kingdom, bar only Henry. His story was how Wolsey would then fall, and he made Anne a Venus figure. That could be the mechanic that would bring him down. So, Cavendish is a good biographer, he's reasonably accurate, he's good to read, he provides details, but he's also biased towards his real aims in writing the history. So, you need to judge the following in that light. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cavendish's story is that young Percy and Anne were in love and super keen to be married. But the king was already interested in Anne, and so he tipped the wink to Wolsey to kill the idea off. Wolsey hauled Percy up in front of the court and gave him a tongue lashing that he didn't get to decide these things. The king and his father had much better match in mind with Mary Talbot and the whole affair was called off. Percy's father was down from the north like a rat up a drain and actually we do know he comes down. Percy would then marry Mary Talbot and would not be happy about it. Anne, meanwhile, was apparently full of fire and fury. Cavendish wrote, if it ever lay in her power, she would work the cardinal as much displeasure. At which Wolsey, most powerful man in the kingdom, properly chuckled in a patronising sort of a way, which would have been unlikely to have made things better with Anne. Now, this sounds like a minor incident, but sit up straight and concentrate. It's important. Firstly, did Henry intervene at this point? If he did, it's very early, well before he'd given up on an heir with Catherine probably even before he'd stopped sleeping with Catherine if it's 1523, and before he'd abandoned plans to legitimise his bastard son by Bessie Blunt, Henry Fitzroy. So, it contributes to a story of Henry's search for divorce and the break from Rome as driven by lust for Anne, 
rather than from purer motives of the search for an heir and a genuine belief in royal supremacy. Secondly, do we believe Cavendish's story that Anne was now Wolsey's sworn enemy and would seek to bring him down if at all possible? In 1529, Cavendish does indeed attribute Wolsey's final fall from grace to Anne's devious machinations at the Royal Palace of Grafton, keeping Wolsey from speaking to the king to save himself. It paints Anne as a deeply political, but more unpleasantly as vindictive, and colours how we might view her relationship with people like Catherine and her daughter Mary. And there are plenty of counter-arguments to Cavendish's version of events, by the way. So, it's pointed out that Wolsey had plenty of other reasons for stopping the marriage. The butler proposal wasn't dead yet. Henry Percy was probably already promised to marry Talbot. And certainly we know that his dad does indeed appear at court at this time, quite possibly to get his son out of harm's way. And it seems far too early for Henry's involvement. He's still living it up with Mrs Carey at this point. But many historians buy the story, so it's even Stevens. OK, so at some point Anne's third suitor enters the list. Henricius Rex, husband of Catherine of Aragon, big bloke, beard, piggy eyes, you know the guy. When Henry turns his gaze to Anne is a matter of some dispute. As we've seen, some say as early as 1524 or even 1523. David Starkey claims a startling insight through the reading of one of Henry's 17 passionate love letters. He links one of those letters with a special gift that Anne gave him. A gift that Starkey says uses a French word for New Year's Day gift. By dating the letters in a specific order, Starkey arrives at the end of 1525 for the start of Henry's interest. The trouble with this, quite apart from the fact that it's an argument as complicated as the financial arrangements for subprime mortgages, and therefore really I've not got the time to try and go into it, is that none of the love letters are dated, and putting them definitively in order is almost impossible. Eric Ives also uses the letters and comes up with a timeline a year later in late 1526. G.W. Bernard comes up with a date of 1525-26, linked to a later interpretation of the Wolsey-Percy incident. There are a few dates that you can absolutely hang your hat on. So, what did this paragon Anne Boleyn look like? Well, there's a question for you. For one thing, she had six fingers, and then she had a wart so enormous, Oliver Cromwell would have been jealous, and she had to wear clothes with a high collar just to hide it. And then, she made Nanny McPhee look like a stunner, because like her, Anne had a protruding tooth. All of this is, of course, rubbish, spread by a Catholic author called Nicholas Sander, though I'm told the sixth finger thing is surprisingly stubborn to disappear. She didn't, though it might just possibly perhaps be that she had the show of a sixth fingernail on one of her fingers. As it happens, it's hard to really know, because there are doubts about all of the portraits of Anne that survive, and again, if you want the full story, and indeed, if you want to read all of Henry's love letters... Head for the Anne Boleyn files. We know, though, that she had an attractive chest, since Henry himself writes this. Wishing myself, especially an evening, in my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty duckies I trust shortly to kiss. Written with the hand of him that was, is, and shall be yours by his will. What most people conclude is that Anne was not of the buxom, blonde ideal favoured at the time but was likely shortish, relatively dark-skinned, slight, with long, dark hair, possibly black, but not necessarily so, actually, and with arresting dark eyes. In a way, none of it matters. What seemed to attract or repel people was her personality, bright, sharp, assertive, witty, intelligent. 
to sadly repeat a joke I've made elsewhere, just like Stacey's mum, she had it going on. What we do absolutely know then is that by May 1527, Henry was making serious official inquiries about the potential for a divorce from Catherine. At some point about here, Henry finally accepts that Anne will not become his mistress, whether from a principled, you're married so we can't have sex, or a manipulative, you can only kiss my pretty duckies if you put a ring on it and give me the power I crave. From this point on, the likelihood is that Henry is as committed to not having sex with Anne as Anne is committed to not having sex with Henry, which kind of flies in the face of tradition that Henry was only prevented by Anne's refusal. There are three reasons for thinking this. One is Henry cannot risk having an illegitimate child with Anne once he's decided to make her his queen, because it would therefore ruin his attempt for a male heir. Secondly, he mustn't appear to the Pope as though he's just after a bit of nookie rather than genuinely troubled in his conscience. And I can't remember the third, which is really irritating. Now, the lack of space I have here saves me from having to go through the king's great matter in great detail along all the way to the break with Rome. So, let me just summarise a few points about that process. Firstly, Henry's motivations for breaking with Rome are variously the search for a male heir, utterly convinced that being a monarch was not a job for a woman, a seemingly genuine belief that he had uncovered a great theological truth, that his marriage was cursed by God because Catherine had been married to his brother, and his desire for Anne. There is so much debate about which one, and maybe probably even all three. Henry had a flexible conscience that could accommodate many reasons. Secondly, in the whole process, Henry did himself no favours. Constantly, Wolsey tried to find him technical ways to sneakily get a result without anybody else really noticing. But Henry always said no, always demanded the high road. An annulment based on a theological necessity that he, the great theologian and Renaissance prince, had discovered. Henry actually held a pretty rubbish hand especially since Catherine's nephew was Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. For a while, war in Italy between the Empire and France meant that Henry could gain some leverage through Francis I of France, who was his ally at the time. But once France had lost that war, it was game over, dude. In 1529, this all came to a head, and at a legatine court of that year, the magnificently determined Courageous and self-righteous, Catherine essentially stole the show. The case crashed and burned and was referred back to Rome, and Henry was left without a strategy. Wolsey at this point crashes and burns right along with the cause, banished from court, some would say with the evil Anne cackling maniacally in the background. He lived on for a year, can't help whining and plotting, and then died on his way south to be tried for treason. Thirdly then, what is difficult to know is what Anne's involvement was throughout the whole process. It is clear that she's kept informed, because on occasion we see her meeting with Henry and his emissaries from the papal court. On occasion, letters are written directly to her. But what we don't know is how far she discussed and worked with Henry behind the scenes. Because, of course, all the instructions issue from Henry's hand, not from Anne's. This becomes a critical question in the next stage when after a period of stalemate, Henry finally moves against the church in England and moves towards a breach with Rome. Some build a picture of an Anne actively involved with Henry, discussing, urging, suggesting, 
placing into his hands evangelical tracts that emphasised the primacy of the king and the need to reform the church. It seems very likely, actually, that Henry, right to the end, desperately wanted papal approval. Even in 1532, he appears to be countenancing the idea that Anne might need to have his bastard rather than his legitimate heir. And so some paint Anne essentially as Henry's backbone through this period. Every time he comes to a critical point where he must burn and destroy a thousand years of tradition, he steps back, only for Anne to jab a fork into his back and push him back to the brink again. Others, on the other hand, paint a picture of Anne anxiously on the sidelines, cheering Henry on, no doubt, but essentially passive, powerless to actually do anything. And there is precious little to deny this entirely traditional view of the role of the Tudor woman and queen. Undeniably, it is Henry having the conversations, as you'd expect. And there's evidence that, as far as royal supremacy is concerned, the break reflects a view in Henry that had expression back in 1515, well before Anne appeared. Into this situation comes one Cromwell, Thomas Cromwell. So here's yet another debate. What are the relative roles of Henry and Cromwell? Whose break from Rome and Reformation is it? We've seen there's a debate about how far it was the Queen's Reformation. Well, maybe it was the Minister's Reformation. So, was it Thomas who, as older tradition would have it, sidles up to Henry and tells him that he knows how to do this? And at the same time, he'll make the King richer than any other king in Christendom. Tell me, tell me, Cromers, says Henry. Look, make yourself head of the church, throw out the Pope, take on all the wealth of the church and ensure the independence of the monarchy forever. Done. Game over, dude. And there is little doubt that once Cromwell appeared on the scene and the useless Norfolk and Suffolk are replaced with an effective bureaucrat, the tempo does indeed hot up. But others make the point that way, way back many centuries ago, not long after the Bible began, Henry had given a clue as to his very exalted view of the monarch's role. I just referred to this in fact. So what Henry actually said was, We are, by the sufferance of God, King of England. And the kings of England in time past never had any superior, but only God. Actually a good deal more recent than the Bible's beginning, 1515 to be precise. Now, no one for a moment imagined Henry was fixing to chuck out the Pope or even the jams back in 1515, brothers and sisters, but he did see the king as the complete authority in his realm and was jealous of papal power. For others, then, the story of 1529 to 1533 is that of a king slowly developing this idea that the king was supreme in his own realm. He's helped there by the Collectinea, the brainchild of Thomas Cranmer, which gathers together all the dusty and at points rather threadbare old legends that point to royal supremacy in the past. He is helped along this road by his hurt and fury that the Pope will not give him what he wants, when he's seen Popes do similar things for many other monarchs. And maybe he's also spurred on by greed for the wealth of the Church, though many people would suggest that emerges later. The point is that Henry was the strategist, is the argument. Anne waves the hanky of encouragement. Cromwell is the enforcer. Whichever you favour, talking of enforcement then, Henry takes on the church. He is faced by a noble and fierce opponent. The leader of Christendom, you say, the Pope. Nope. Pope Clement was far too political, 
far too eager to avoid upsetting Henry as far as he could to help his own flock in England. The Pope is entirely absent in this. OK, then, you say, William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, leader of the English Church. Nope. Warham was old, tired and a bit feeble and seems to have constantly assumed that Henry would never take the last, final, irrevocable step and dethrone the Pope. Or at least, until it was too late. Nope, one Bishop John Fisher was the man who would not bend to tyranny and defended the rights of the Church in the face of almost certain death. The tool used to bring the Church to heel and embed the royal supremacy was Parliament, a parliament stuffed full of secular lords, soaked in the oil of resentment at the power and some failures of the church, and maybe also with a desire to get their hands on church wealth, the Reformation Parliament as it became known, which sat from 1529. Eventually, despite such opposition as Fisher's example encouraged, the church was brought closer and closer under the king's authority. By successive acts of parliament, Papal Jews were threatened and then removed. The church accepted the king as head of the English church, but with a face-saving clause which said, as far as the laws of Christ allows. It was made illegal to appeal to the Pope over the head of the king, and then finally, finally, the church was forced in 1532 to accept the king's supremacy without qualification. Thomas More resigned as chancellor. Fisher started to write to the emperor, begging him to invade and save the church. Warham decided that now was a good time to die, and so he did. Essentially, Henry rode a tide of anti-clericalism in Parliament to the supremacy which was to be completed in 1534. The vast majority of people in England probably had no problem with their church's theology or of their local traditions and observances. But enough important people with influence did resent the power, legal immunity and wealth of the church, and the church had its vulnerabilities. The use of Parliament to do this is hugely significant. Henry was as close to an absolute monarch as you would get in England, using the phrase absolutism loosely. But ironically, it was he that embedded the idea that Parliament had ultimate authority about all of these things, because it was he that used Parliament to make these decisions, the kind of things they'd never been involved in before. It was canny, short-term tactics, gaining agreement and thus minimising resistance. It was rubbish, long-term strategy. In the autumn of 1532, then, Henry and Anne went on a trip to France. Through careful negotiation, Henry managed to get Francis I to meet with the woman the empire's ambassador called the concubine. At Calais, and afterwards on a slow journey home, Anne and Henry broke their fast and dined on the wages of sin. Sorry, a bit over the top. Anne and Henry had sex. Why, I hear you cry, why? There has yet been no divorce. There is no Archbishop of Canterbury since Cranmer, Warham's planned replacement, was out of the country. There has been no marriage. Are they mad? Well, here are two theories. One is that Anne, or the Marchioness of Pembroke, as she was now called, simply could not wait any longer. The biological clock was ticking. Henry had been dithering around for seven years now. Come on, let's go for it. Bit of concentrated nookie, get pregnant, really push the king into taking the final step. Alternatively, another theory, the church has been brought to heel. Francis has accepted Anne at his side. Henry knew he was there now. It was just a matter of dotting and crossing. So, might as well do what we've been wanting to do for years. Either way, there we are at the end of 1532, 
the decisive step has been taken, though it's not clear that Henry and Anne knew quite how decisive until Anne would realise that she's pregnant. Next week, we'll carry on with England's story during the reign of Queen Anne Boleyn, not only the momentous events surrounding the implementation of the royal supremacy, but also the kind of queen that Anne turns out to be. Don't forget that there is a Shedcast waiting for you members on the historiography of Anne, how history through the ages has seen her. Let me give you a taster. Here's a chap you will all know called Charles Dickens, writing in 1854. Anne Boleyn was showing herself very worthy of the fate which afterward befell her. Hmm, a little harsh, you might say. He was, however, building on a tradition that even Edward VI, Henry VIII's successor, had himself indulged in when he dismissed Anne with the words, more inclined to couple with a number of courtiers rather than reverencing her husband. Though, just to illustrate the point that you need to know your sources, Christine did post on the website to point out that this quote comes from one Robert Wingfield, a Catholic gentleman, who was celebrating Catholic Mary's accession to the throne. So, did Edward really say this? Tricked with care, I think, is the message. Sticking with the literary tradition, many years before Dickens had written, the 16-year-old Jane Austen had disagreed. This amiable woman was entirely innocent of the crimes of which she was accused, of which her beauty, her elegance, her sprightliness were sufficient proofs. Jane may well have been indulging her sense of humour, but she also reflected a tradition. Here was John Fox, writing in 1563. Her great many gifts of a well-instructed spirit, gentleness, modesty and piety towards all, particularly towards those who were in dire poverty, a zeal for the true religion. Both Toe's traditions survive to this present day. To find out more, listen to Shedcast 18, and if you're not a member, become a member by visiting thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member, and by so doing, open the oyster of a new world. Either way, I'll see you all next week, Jimmy. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck, and have a great week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you.